let's let's talk about the fact in the pit room that you quit like right before this happened. Was this a conspiracy? Did you set this up? Did you know this was going to happen? <laughs> we should we should talk about that. The most orthodox of all Marxist economists I have ever met. The reason why I'm still a Marxist is that I claim that this structure of belief, of displaced belief, you find it in what Marx described as commodity fetishism. That all really dialectical and intelligent human beings will have a sense for evil and some sympathy for the devil. Or they will be just a little stifled and bored. I think that's not wrong. Just a little sympathy for the devil will hurt. Inside Critical Theory brings you this Diet Soap interview. You announced on Twitter that we were going to be talking about anti-politics. Yeah, because that's what you uh, told me we were going to be talking about. Okay, then uh, then that's what we'll talk about. I, uh, um, there's a, you know, I'm I'm sort of running around uh, a lot these days, trying to keep a lot of things going. Up, you know, trying to bring the publishing part of this together. Mm-hmm. Dealing with, um, I finally settled all the background legal issues. That's that's settled unless something changes. I don't think that they, it will. Um, I, uh, I'm watching the Patreon like a hawk, you know, but getting a lot of support there. Um, yeah. So it's a weird transitional moment. There's a, there's someone on Twitter who, uh, has taken my picture and, and my name and is imitating me sort of not really imitating me. Let me give you an example of the kind of thing that they're saying. Um, tweeting out, uh, under my name. Um, this is, uh, by someone at, on Twitter, his name is Doug Lane at zerobookspublishing.com, November 30th. They say, the only fans women I follow on here are definitely going to have sexy with me. Just a matter of when and where, really. <laughs> okay. Like, this not, okay. That's not even political parody. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I'm not sure exactly. I guess I ha- I come off like a, a middle-aged incel or some shit. I don't know exactly uh, how people interpret me, but um uh I have sexy all the time. I don't I don't need to 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 wait for the OnlyFans women. Um I just want to say that outright. Uh because saying that outright will certainly discourage someone like this from making these kinds of tweets. All right. So all that is um, now cut, and we'll start from here. Hello, Derek. How are you doing today? I'm glad to have I'm you back good. on the channel. <laughs> nice to um, be back on a diet soap. I guess this is the first time I'm on a diet soap channel, but yeah, yeah, you been yeah, you were a regular guest on the diet soap podcast, um, and this is the podcast. Really, it's just got a video component as well. Um, I think what we are going to talk about today is. Um, sort of the impasse that we've been feeling, I think for over a year, really. Um, yeah. Uh, but that is for me personally be- become rather profound. Um, uh, you know, I'll just say that in, in the uh, background, I've had conversations with people who are on the left where they've expressed to me, not just one person, but a, a couple of different people and different, very different, from very different milieus expressed me a feeling that they don't know how to even talk about what's wrong because Mm. if they start to try to talk about what's wrong, they uh, are either shoved into the culture war or just Mm -hmm. not heard at all. Yeah. And, 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 um, and so like as an example, it's very difficult to talk about, the response to the pandemic in a serious way. Oh yeah. I mean, it's pretty much been relegated to like Axios or something like that. I mean, not even, not even NPR seems to be able to talk about it in a serious way. Um, and I think that's been interesting. I listened today to something on your Patreon, which was us at like ground zero of the pandemic. Um, like the first right. week before we were even sent home here in Utah from the public school. So almost two years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was wild to think about how much worse the impasse has 
has gone. And then I flip back to a conversation um, uh, that you and I had four years ago. Um, it was right after Trump got elected and we were talking about the anti-political move. And I had written a series called, uh, you know, um, the de- like uh, the deaf to wonktopia, um, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. was talking about how flat-footed the response of conditional of conventional Democrats have been, not just to 2015, but really to the entire spectrum of politics that they had forgotten how how they came back into power, even though they won the popular election in 2008, that they had forgotten what it had taken to really shake off that neoconservative yoke. Um, And I was thinking about this today. Um, Joe Biden was always an anemic candidate. Like it was clear that even the, the center of the democratic party was afraid of uh, of a seven seven year old Joe Biden in a way they probably wouldn't have been if he'd have run in two thousand fifteen, um, and the coronation there was because there was no one on the backbench other than not even really Bernie. I I, I don't want to flatter your listeners actually by <laughs> pretending that Bernie was actually super strong either. Um, the well, let me let me jump in and say two things. That that death, the death of Wonktopia, mm-hmm. essay you wrote. I mean, I think in in a certain, from a certain perspective, now you were being too optimistic. Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think Wonktopia is at all is at all dead. Well, um, but now, I also the pandemic think it's has revived it, huh? I don't think it's alive either. I mean, this, this is a, this is this weird moment that we live in because of the pandemic. Pandemic has revived the center in a lot of places, even the centers of social democracy. But public opinion has gone against them, mostly cut towards the right, actually. Well, that, um, I, yeah. Well, let's let's get to that. But but okay. So, but the the the, the main thing that I I, I want to say, Walktopia, is the strongest political actor on the scene today i think it's 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 got the it's got the most of the power behind it and then briefly to address the the question of bernie sanders bernie sanders was never meant to be was never thought of by even his supporters as the candidate that the establishment wanted it was supposed to be something that happened the kind of the way trump happened no one the republican party didn't want trump but he ended up getting there despite forces against him so I just want to point out that despite that, you know, clearly San- the Sanders m- movement was a failure, but there was a moment there after the first three primaries where Sanders started to look inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because we know, can't do math, but sure. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, he wasn't inevitable, but he started to look inevitable. But yeah, well, right. Right. I mean, and- you know, and in and a, and a normal candidate, if it hadn't been a Trump-like candidate, you know, if, in other words, a candidate that was not uh, the embraced by the establishment, if it had been Michael Dukakis or uh, John Kerry, he would have certainly been inevitable mm-hmm. after those three victories, right? Um, so you can't, you know, you can't kick uh, the social democratic left too hard for their delusions in that very small window. Uh, after those three primaries and the defeat that was suffered after that, you know, it was a kick in the guts. It was, it was, it did feel bad um, to watch that happen. I know it was in, you know, I know social democracy that wasn't even really an American phenomenon. Like this is a worldwide phenomenon where we're, I think we're going to see in all the places that are coming up for elections, where the center left was in charge in Europe, they're probably going to lose. And all right. the places that the that the center right was in charge, they're also probably going to lose. Um, and the exception to that being the UK, because the 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 strife within the labor movement ha- 
was so thorough that apparently the leadership of labor is totally willing to make the uh, post-Brexit UK one-party state um, effectively for the for the immediate future. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, they 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 have no serious response to Boris Johnson, despite the corruption scandals and major flub ups um, that, frankly, are even more. If you really study what went on in the UK, are even more embarrassing in some ways than what happened to Trump. The Tories will make, will pay no political price for it. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. So, what have we seen in America? I mean, I was listening today uh, to Standard Normal Five Thirty Eight podcast stuff um, because were you, you were listening to Five Thirty Eight particularly, or or I was listening to Five Thirty Eight, and I was listening to just normal NPR because every now and then you have to listen to what the normies say, and NPR is also in La La Land right now. Mm-hmm. We, we, you know, we could talk about that later. Mm-hmm. But um, 538 was saying that we have seen an uptick in the Republican Party membership and people re-registering as Republicans in the last six months more than we've probably seen in 20 years. Hmm. Um, they weren't actually even blaming Biden's unpopularity, although that's a large part of it. They were blaming inflation. Um, and... I think that when we talk about anti-politics, people like Tad Tezza, um, who, you know, whose book on anti-politics we've been awaiting on bated breath now for like four years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've seen a lot of them move more and more towards explicitly right-wing talking points and towards seeing the movement of the social, as they would call it, call it mm-hmm. um, outside of the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, ironically, they, they kind of proved an assertion that Chris Catron made in 2013-14 correct, that attempts to go outside of politics to revitalize the left would probably, over time, move right-wing. And you've seen that with a lot of these individuals picking up talking points that from their standpoint of the social don't make a lot of sense. They only make sense if you're picking up talking points that are broadly speaking, conservative talking points. Can you give me an example of one of them? The way they talk about vaccines, um, vaccines and mass mandates and whatnot. Um, there are plenty of critiques to be made about how the liberal establishment has handled vaccines about liberal elites hypocrisy and, and uh, mask enforcements and stuff like that. I mean, and there are people making those critiques, frankly, um, whether or not they're good faith or bad faith is not for me to decide. And we probably can't know for a while, mm-hmm. but what I will say is you, you start seeing people talk about, um, you know, pick up anti-vax and anti-mask talking points, particularly mask, because it's a small ask. I, I There was a window where I could have um, accepted some, let's not push masks to get more people vaccinated. That was my uh, position right. for a while. I, I think that, I, I don't know that I agree with that position, but at least it was a defensible position. Um, what I have found interesting in the emergence of, uh, of this is we've seen anti-left Marxism emerge. Um, we've seen, um, which claims to be beyond left and right, but only punches left. Um, we've seen uh, uh emergence of like Stalinism. We've seen a reemergence for the third or fourth time of conspiracy mongering, but amongst bigger channels of left-wing media, Um, and I was thinking about it today and I was like, this feels like a deviation, but it's actually kind of a return to a norm, um, of like the aughts, even though a lot of people involved probably barely remember that. You know, no, it does. I mean, all of that sounds relatively familiar. Okay. So just to address the, I want to address the anti-vax, anti-mask sentiment, Mm -hmm. um, and also talk about what it means to punch right or left right now. Um, but I, I I was on the Alpha Bunga Bunga podcast, uh, I think it was today, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I was 
discussing the anti-vax position and uh, the opposition to the max to the uh, mandate to the vaccine mandate um which are not exactly the same thing but they're similar and my thinking is that they're the, the, being opposed to the vaccine has become a way for people mostly on the right but but not only on the right to to express dissatisfaction or opposition to the way COVID was handled overall. Um, it's a it's symbolically like a rejection of the state's authority uh, based on the failure of the state to respond. It's not a rational response, but this is a sentiment behind it, I think. This is what gives it emotional power. Um, but beyond the conspiracy theories and beyond all the rest, it's just sort of this visceral response to the failure of the state uh, to to adequately respond and and also it's uh, a denial or rejection of the way responsibility for the impact of the vaccine uh, of the of the virus has been shifted from state authorities onto the general population and broken you know uh, broken up and in, uh, into a tribal war so like the people responsible for the problems created by COVID are the unvaccinated, are the bread staters, or the people who maybe don't have college degrees or things like that. So, and I think that the sentiment there is it would, would explain why someone like Richard Wolf has opposed the, the, the vaccine mandate. I mean, I, I'm going to talk to him soon about why he took that position. But I think that explains it, or at least explains part of it. You know, I can talk, you know, I'm going to sound like a centrist wonk almost for a second, and which is okay. funny because how much I hate wonks. Mm -hmm. But the best argument against a vaccine mandate is the amount of efficacy increase it's likely to bring out is like 5%, but it could cost legitimacy for public health way beyond that benefit. Mm -hmm. And so, and also, frankly, you're already seeing uh, OSHA can't enforce it, doesn't really yeah. seem to want to enforce it's it. It's a very weak. I mean, the, the, the requirement is a vaccine mandate on a very small uh, portion of the of the uh, it's not small, but it's it's a it's a sizable minority. Yeah. OK, right. It's not it's not by any means uh, requiring no. the entire population to be vaccinated, which is what the vaccine mandate name implies is what the the way that it's rhetorically dealt with is if it is but, demanding everyone be vaccinated when it's really uh more targeted than that and uh and allows frankly for targeted in a way that doesn't make that much sense uh, right from an yeah i mean you don't standpoint. actually have to get the vaccine no according to the terms of the mandate you can just get tested for covid every day However, the implication is that since people will not be able to get tested for COVID every day because they would have to figure out how to provide their own tests, that um, it's going to encourage mass layoffs in certain large-scale corporations. And then the, the knock-on effect was intentional, that it would make people who were not actually affected by it afraid to get the vaccine. I mean, to, to afraid so they get the vaccine. The mm. the uh, but that's that's like disastrous public policy in a lot of ways. One, um, I know people keep on talking about how the federal government has a lot of mandates. When I you know when I've actually looked at mandates for vaccinations, most of them have been at a state level. States clearly have the authority to do it. Mm. Um, and the federal government clearly has the authority to do it for federal employees. But I'll tell you today, Biden's administration announced they weren't even going to lay off everyone who didn't meet the mandate for the federal employees or, or fire them yet, that they were going to postpone that to January. And I suspect they're going to just never do it. Mm -hmm. um, so what was all this for? Um, I mean, so, I mean, th there's, th there's a way in which... You know, there's a way in which people push back on me because I, I've just said I have said like, look, I am I am I am pro vaccination, but I don't like the way the information has been curtailed. I, 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 like epidemiologists have taken hits for promises they actually didn't make. 
um, that that it was media, frankly, primarily liberal media, because conservative media was pushing uh, in the other direction, making over promises for a vaccine that we all knew we didn't really know how efficacious it could be because it was pushed out so fast. Um, right. Well, I, there were some good studies that were done early on that showed that it was there's a five fairly- fucking year cycle for this normally for a reason i know but i'm just saying i trusted the that the evidence i mean i don't think that even the studies that were done early on were necessarily wrong what was wrong no. was, was how, how it was communicated well right and also how long the vaccine would remain that efficacious. well yeah yeah you know? and and different vaccines um have different no. efficacy levels yeah like- jo- johnson johnson apparently is piece shit vaccine and, right uh, Pfizer's not is not the 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 top of the line. It was Moderna that did best, and 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 um, you have saw you been the... have you gotten your booster yet? By yes, the I way? have. I have not yet. I need to go get my booster. I've been vaccinated in May, and I guess it's time. So um, you know all this. All this said, like I, I I've been trying to tell people uh, on the left have more sympathy for the anti-vax uh, sentiment, but don't give in to it. Don't chase it. Don't right, yeah. Don't um, you know? I, I think with Richard Wolf, I, I'm going to be frank, um, um, particularly now. Uh, I think Richard Wolf is reading where he thinks the working class is. He looked at the, the the nature of the strikes, what the initial reporting was on that strike wave that the left pretty much completely missed out on. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that. What? What like is that over now? Is that yes? Is it, that... Ironically, um, from what the last round of statistics I saw is by the time the left was actually on to it, it was already largely beginning to die out. So like strike tober didn't really happen, and it was only a slight blip from the normal strike actions that you see. But that actually wasn't true for the prior month, and. We also haven't factored in the fact that a lot of places have just had a ton of walkouts um, and people just giving up the job. Yeah, this is something I really want to understand better because, I mean, how many of these people are just giving up their jobs or actually going to just end up being permanently unemployed? I have no idea. And and no one else does either. And the one thing I will say, it can't explain the labor shortage or the yeah, capital right. strike or both. I, I'm actually of the opinion that what we're seeing is actually both a capital strike, which is an, is an attempt to use um, to exaggerate the lack of labor to um, keep both prices down, to keep labor prices down. Um, but with inflation, that's going to be impossible. And it's well, already- labor shortages don't generally keep prices down they they usually keep the wage give give workers a way to get higher wages i would think labor real labor shortages don't like you should read up on capital strikes and and the prediction in the 40s which is the idea that uh they will claim that employers will claim to need uh more help than they do and and actually deliberately under schedule and whatnot to create an, a feeling of a shortage to increase the application pool. Now, I actually, I there are there's anecdotal evidence of that in certain fields, um, but there actually isn't a lot of evidence for it in general. I just you what's know, the so, motive? Why? Why? What is that? How does that benefit? So that way you have more more applications coming in. Therefore, you can fire people more easily and hire someone at a lower wage. No, it's just it's just you could the the appearance of competition would actually, um lead on, on a firm level to the ability to continue to under charge um, or, or, or underpay the, the yeah underpay the existing staff, et cetera, and so forth. Mm-hmm. I don't really think that's what we're seeing except in a very rare instances. Like, like I said, I've heard anecdotes to mm-hmm. this, to the, to people who've like applied to a bunch of jobs who haven't been able to get hired, even though we're supposedly in a labor shortage. And I totally believe that I'm not saying that those individuals are lying, but what I am saying is you can't deduce a capital strike from that. Um, and, and what I can also say that the concurrently, the right wing narrative about it, that it's all people who are on the super generous unemployment who aren't working. Well, in my state, we haven't taken unemployment since the beginning of the summer. Um, 
We're yeah, no, it's to, clearly not that. I mean, so it's clearly yeah, it's it's and it's not going away. Um, well, I think I, I think that the double whammy of 2008 and then the pandemic created conditions. This is you know this is not backed by any empirical evidence, but my 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 thought, something that I think we should investigate, is that it created conditions where the the number of people that are no longer counted on the uh, uh, as employable, you know, that they're no longer seeking work, uh, rose markedly, even, uh, you know, uh, beyond what had happened in 2008, or people who were maybe on the on the fringes there became permanently unemployed. And that that's, that's how we, um, that's how we've, we've just ended up with uh, uh, labor shortages. Um, I think some of it is that. I think some of it is childcare. I think some of it is old people leaving the like. There's been a mass boomer retirement that's been largely yeah. like uncommented on. Um, uh, between that and the childcare a- problems, um, I mean, one of the interesting things is is you saw the reversal of the trend of the game in 2008 that uh, low lower end. Uh, skilled but not highly paid female work was one of the few things that was really unscathed during the Great Recession and thus grew as a proportion of the labor force um, from like 2009 up and through uh, uh, 2019, even to the cost of like like teachers and stuff. I mean, t- we've had a teacher shortage forever, partly because people who would have gone into teaching and gone into things uh, related to like servicing hospitals, you know, that, that, that sort of work. Well, a lot of those people have childcare, childcare costs more and certainly childcare can cost up to like, um, you know, like $20,000 a year in some places. Uh, so it's, it's become, it's just an economic calculus for some of those women to leave the market. And, some of them don't seem to be coming back. Like, uh, so it's, it's, I think you're right. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm actually giving mm-hmm. you empirical, like the empirical conditions that we can verify, they would verify some of what you suspect there. And mm-hmm. if someone becomes a housewife, you know, they effectively aren't going to be counted after a while in, in the unemployment statistics. Um, the, the other thing I think we just don't know is, you know, what's I have my suspicions as to what's causing the inflation and my narrative is different than everybody's. Um, although I said it a year ago um, that we'd eventually see inflation, not because even of like the super generous uh, Democratic policy. I mean, because even that tax credit for, for parents, that's what, three hundred dollars a month. That's not going to cause inflation. What you what what you're seeing causing this kind of inflation is a mixture of supply chain issues that may not ever go away, or at least might go away in the near term future. Um, and uh, I think actually all this QE that we've been pumping into the yeah. market since mm-hmm. 2008, uh, it's been kind of eking out slowly during before COVID, but it all got jammed up during COVID. And now we're just flooded with, with asset inflation. It's got to go somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. And I find it kind of amazing that both left and even actually the populist right has been talking about neoliberalism uh, when it's pretty clear to me that while some elements of, of like, trying to force people into compelled markets. Part of neoliberalism is still around and going to be with us for a long time. Um, uh, even in like the build back better plan, and if it gets through and this, you know, this infrastructure relief, a lot of that stuff was put back in there, but the, the cores of neoliberalism about non-government intervention and uh, our limited government intervention in the kinds of markets, other than setting them up, Mm-hmm. that's all over and has really been over since 2009 um, in the sense that like QE has really made all that irrelevant since people freaked out about the stock market crashing after 2007, the government has more or less made sure 
that won't happen no matter what. Um, I think a lot of those chickens and are coming home to roost. And and this is where this anti-political sentiment really comes in because people Yeah, are- explain how the connection here between between all these economic factors that we've been talking about the and the way people are motivate are are becoming lumpen and uh uh and you know it's getting harder to buy things because of inflation. How does that lead to an anti-political uh, left, for instance? An anti-political left, well the leftist is going to check out because they've been promised, they've been talking about this stuff for for years. And the best plan that that even the opposition to the DSA on the broad stream left, and I don't mean like the liberal left, but I do mean like people adjacent to it. You look at Jimmy Dore, etc., um, is the force the vote so that. We'll finally out the 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 neoliberals and the Democrat and the Democratic Party as being illegitimate. And in some ways, that's insulting because it assumes that people hadn't noticed they were illegitimate before. Like, mm-hmm. like this is the worst the matter with Kansas question. And the real the real thing is, um, yes, a year ago, two years ago, we saw that broadly speaking fairly progressive policies would win even in red states, which means that, okay, now you have to explain, despite their popularities, why are we still fudging around with tax credits? Why are we still fudging around with infrastructure programs? Why are we, because also they all, everybody knows the Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema, Christian Cinema, which we should all remind ourselves, was like a progressive endorsed um, by all kinds of people until 2019. Was the first bisexual, openly bisexual senator. Was a member of the Green Party. What wrote about getting like somehow she had a change of heart in the last year and a half um, that we've all forgotten where she, you know, what she was, but. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, this is she has served as a way for us to forget about how many how many Democrats, period, have softened or reneged on policies that they have also supported in the past f- mm-hmm. five or six years. And it was hilarious to me that one of the big things that people you know that that before they got slaughtered um, in Virginia, that the Dems were trying to hold out um, on the infrastructure plan for a carbon tax, Mm -hmm. which would have been incredibly unpopular unless you also had all this other infrastructure to replace the need for carbon. But if that all is taken out too, and you're dying on the hill of the carbon tax and not the stuff that's going to make it, you know, less progressive and less awful, Mm. it looks like you're siding with just the negative end of progressive policy without any promise of the stick. So of Mm. course people are just going to tune out. Also what they hear from, from left, not just, not just centrist wonks, but from leftist wonks is that inflation doesn't matter. That inflation, unless it goes above like 11% really only hurts the rich, even though what they're seeing is the rich being able to buy all these houses and raise rents. Um, and yet even things like food now, which have and consumer goods, which is what most people measure the inflation index off of is consumer yeah. goods and not things like food and housing and all that, which we've never not seen above 3% on. It's in the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, uh, is somehow, you know, only, only hurting the rich because it's making the debt, Weaker. Well, I hate to tell people about yeah. this, but a lot of debt was paid off with <laughs> with those first rounds of COVID checks. And the poor, if they're debt leveraged, they're debt leveraged at such high interest rates that inflation's not going to help that. Um, not on a way that they're going to notice, but yeah. their rent going up, which it has massively will. So telling them that inflation isn't going to hurt them because, well, it's just going to make your debt less actually sounds like what you're favoring, even on the left, is like small 
homeowners and like you know the middle yeah. class of the what we, in liberal terms the middle class of the working class like the, the right. better off of the working class yeah okay but let, let okay so what i don't understand is actually because even though i i might not have said quite as much as you just did when i was talking about this in the past i too looked at the quantitative easing and uh, the amount of money that was being pumped into the economy and said, this is eventually going to lead to inflation. Mm -hmm. And I, and you know, I spent a while learning just enough about political economy to be able to, to say why I think that uh, MMT is not uh, an adequate response to the class division and and the class struggle. And that that's not going to be a solution that, and that, Basically, the dream of a statist uh, policy uh, proposal solving the contradictions of capital uh, is is utopian in the worst mm -hmm. sense. And you know, I've been saying it for a, a while. Th those kinds of things, and I'm part of the left. So why so why do I feel it's such a loss, despite the fact that a, a lot of what I thought might happen is is sort of happening. Um, I, I guess maybe the reason would be if I'll answer my own question, it's because despite saying those things in practice, I was tailing or uh, the the Sanders campaign through it all. I was tailing the social democratic left, even as I was criticizing it, you know, as part of that united front with yeah. them, you know? Uh, so I made my differences clear, but I continued to support it. Right. And now that's gone. It's not even like the the word a worst case scenario is that that they would have taken some power and become the enemy in this moment the way the Biden has say. That hasn't happened, but they're gone. They're de defeated. And so so I guess what I'm left with what you were left with too even though, you know, uh uh you don't want to be there uh, either is just a, a moment where you can say, "Well, I told you so." Yeah, but that's, that's, that's cold <laughs> comfort, right? I mean Right, right. I mean, yeah. it's it's in very cold comfort because, like, it's one thing to feel smug on your podcast um, when the world's not burning. It's another thing when it is, and and I don't think like I'm not in the look. I'm going to say something probably the most controversial thing I'm going to say is. Even the breakdown of capitalism, if it was if it has already started and it's not going to be socialism, it's going to be so slow um, in a lot of ways that we might not even notice it all. Like, um, and I've been pushing back on on uh, on people who've told me, you know, well, the riots meant this. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, but the riots. The riots had their one uh, a certain character at the beginning. They had a different character by the end in Portland. And under the Biden administration, no one really cares. No, they didn't totally go away. But okay, so then the strike wave happens. Well, we're not. We don't seem to be adequately involved in that. We don't know how to help these union workers. Also, people miss this. But the amount of the manufacturing sector that was unionized uh, went up in its proportion to labor because more non-unionized workers got let off, but actually went down in raw numbers during COVID. So the unionized workforce was actually hurt, even though on superficial looking at the percentages, it looked like it grew one or two percent. And that's down from only being 11% of manufacturing, which itself is only like something like 12 or 13% of the entire American economy. But that's not mm -hmm. just true here. That's the thing. Like mm -hmm. if you look at this on a world scale, these problems are everywhere. And so we're not seeing the left, not just here, but pretty much anywhere um, except for maybe in a complicated way, the uh, the neo Maoists and the CC uh, and the and the CPC made some small headway with the Xi administration um, in the quote Red New Deal unquote. But if you look at what the Red New Deal actually is, it's a mixture of 
of what, but in the West, by this people, by the same people who would not accept it here, are highly conservative social policies in regards to sexuality and and stuff like that. Really strongly being pushed by the 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 CPC, mm-hmm. um, as well as some recognition without formally recognizing people outside of the all Chinese labor, um, the all Chinese labor union, which which never recognizes any strike. Um, some concessions being made to them, and then something like great society programs coming out of China, um, uh, also crackdowns on on their internal tech sector. So they're not just cracking down on you know Western tech now; they're they're cracking down on like Weibo um, because they started having some of the same problems from the tech sector and. in, internal to China that we have here, and so um, there's been some gains by neo Maoist policy, but it's still from from even the standpoint of any socialist program, it would be considered historically quite meager, um, mm-hmm. particularly from a state that doesn't really have political opposition. So, um, what what are we seeing as gains right now? Like, um, hold, hold on one second. Did the food come? Yes. Okay. Bye, barn. Okay, I'll tell them. Okay, so in about five, ten minutes, I'm going to take off and go have a dinner, and then we'll do a second half. Is that okay? Sure, we'll come back and do the uh, the pair room. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, um, well, you've done a lot of talking. Yeah, I always Um, do a lot of talking. (laughs) And uh, and uh, but no, I've agreed with everything you've you've been saying. Um, Okay. So yeah. So so social democracy in a way is what's happening in China. Yeah, right? I mean, kind of like, yeah. If yeah. you finally, finally, the communist dream of social democracy has arrived. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. like, yeah. like it, it, this is where we're at. Right. And, I mean, and it's arrived in China, communist China. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it will take off from there. Maybe it will spread from China to the rest of the world in some it, way. Maybe the uh, Corbyn campaign and. But I do think that's a fantasy. I think that's like maybe part of the reason why the there's been so much pro-China sentiment from well, people I, who were who were like part of momentum, part of the, the Sanders campaign. Well, you've like seen the, far the left collapse between social democracy and like soft Stalinism. It's just totally collapsed into each other. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. we, we are in like the the Marxist-Leninist moment in some ways. But like to say that is also to be. I mean, it, it's 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 uh, it's damning with praise because to say that we're in their moment is also to say that like, and you've been able to do what exactly? Like, stand for a state that you're not living in and bring none of that out to you know to any other state in any way meaningful, nor achieve any real gains, or even I mean, and this I actually think is important, right? Mm-hmm. Turn the U.S. Uh, propaganda machine against china down because you know what's done that um basically biden and g getting to the table um just in and doing real politique because there is i think both sides realize you know you push this too much and it becomes dangerous particularly right now when there's real fears about climate change so all right so listen i want to i want to ask you a question before we sign off on this first half and um if you're if you listen to someone like Chris Catron at Platypus, one of the things that you come up start thinking about is how the left is not uniform; it's divided up into kind of parts, right? There's mm-hmm. the anti-imperialist left, there's the academic left, there's the activist left. Um, uh, I, I'm sure I'm forgetting another part of the there's left. There's the DSA left, which 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 well, weirdly to, though encompasses all of it. <laughs> it well, kind of. Um, and there's uh the social the social democratic left. Um, uh, yeah, so. What what do you think? Like, where do the podcasters and the publishers and the YouTubers fit? We're not part of the activist left. We're not part of the academic left. Really, some of us might be, but not really. Are we conjoined to anything? Uh, I, I I think it very much depends on the podcaster's aspirations, but aspirations. But what I would say is no, um, and 
we are a form of edutainment and increasingly it's been clear that most of the time it was the tainment part, not the edu part that stuck. Um, mm. And I, I, I feel like it, it's easy to say it's, you know, it's easy to come down on the left for this, but just look at the entire political milieu right now. Um, uh, the left that didn't pick up the water for Russiagate, like, okay. Um, the part of the left that didn't do that. Um, well, then you have the left that did, and then you have the liberals that did, right? I mean, and the liberals actually did so. I think even in the left, it was more sympathetic to Russiagate far more than the left did. But what was that? Really? It was, it was entertainment. It was politics as football. It amazingly changed, from what I can tell, nothing. Like, um, and, you know, even in so much that some of the stuff, the few things they found out about that, I mean, we're not even going to get into, like, um, the the steel dossier or any of that, which, woof. Yeah, which um, turned out to be, you know, if, if damning, if anyone was damning, if I guess the Democratic Party in the Clinton campaign. I mean, right. the, the, you know, but, um, yeah, I mean, so, okay, so there was that. That's, and then on the course on the QAnon and, and all sorts of, uh, fake, you know, entertainment is politics or politics is entertainment has dominated the right. I mean, that's yeah, it totally has, that. right? So, so yeah, so but but I feel as though the kinds of podcasts, like let's say the Alpha to Omega or uh, Swampside, uh, or Zero Books or uh, now Diet Soap again, that all of that, um, has been different. A different character where we've been trying to be more critical and 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 be autodidactic at least that's been my approach um, I, mean, I even think i mean, i'll even give chapo like parts of chapo yeah. tried to oh, be sure. critical and autodidactic the the, yeah. the problem is like let's be honest about our problem is if we push our audience too hard we lose it and i'm not saying that like we we've never pushed back i mean I've I've told our audience at times literally to go fuck themselves, right, but right. but I mean it. Th there is a limit to how much you push, push it. Also, in their defense, we haven't had a coherent answer for what you know a social program or a political program to replace this could be. All we've been able to do is say you know we have been able to be critical, but that's it. Like, we've been able to say, okay, look, the probability is, from the historical knowledge that we have and what we see right now, this won't work, like, and here's the reasons, let's come up with something better, but people don't take that last invitation to help you come up with something better, they hear the first part, they push against it because you're not offering another ready-made solution, and I guess my point is, we never were, like, Marxism... Historically, um, and this I think this is it's somewhat a fair critique of Marxism sometimes, um, has been really reticent to say what the answer to the problem is because we are always afraid that any answer that we give in one time period, even if it's legitimate for that time period, will be taken as an answer for all times. And we just have to look at how many people pick up X historical position of X historical Marxist or socialist group and hold on to it despite the fact all the conditions that caused X to be instantiated in the first place do not exist now mm -hmm. um, about the hesitation to do that. But psychologically speaking, like that's a hard ask. That's a really hard ask. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think what we, what we tried to do was walk the line between tailing the social Democrats who themselves were tailing the Democrats while complaining about them while also being critical, but you and I both know particularly up to the Bernie loss, we were holding our tongues. We really were. There were times where I were, where we would just be like, well, you know, this Bernie thing, if it happens, we will at least have a new Avenue to explore, um, you know, yeah, but we didn't entirely hold our tongues. I no, no, no. But but there are but, times where, like, well, it was hard for me to stomach my own pessimism. You know, 
Well, yeah. I, right. I mean, I, so, uh, yeah. And there are times when we were too pessimistic. I actually will say that because like, for example, if you listen to that first COVID thing, there are times where, we're, where you're pushing back on me saying that like, look, they're going to let us all just die. And, while, <laughs> and, yeah, and, was wrong. While, like, and I was wrong. Um, yeah. I mean, I was wrong partly because I think the Republicans were surprised by the response to their own base. Wait, so I was pushing back on you and you were the one saying they're going to let us all die. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I, yeah, right. And I was yeah, saying, no, you no. Went on that. You were like, you were like, well, eventually. And I'm like, I was like, well, eventually, but do you have faith in this government? And then you were like, well, no, I don't. And I'm like, ha we're all going to die. <laughs> and, like, and, and I was, but, but I, but I think I would say something like, well, look, I've looked at the uh, King's college London plan or whatever it was. And, Mm-hmm. And it looks like that's going to be implemented. And, you know, I don't think that we're going to, and they're going to try to get some vaccines and, you know. Uh, yeah. Will... I mean, well, at that time, though, I mean, w- w- that, and in both mine and your defense, that's before the King College Landing Plan was done. That's so early on. I mean, like, we weren't on lockdown yet. No one even talked about, like, about. I think I read about the King. I think I read that, like, a, a week before the lockdown started or a couple of days before so, the lockdown which started. Been, which literally would have been, if you'd read that, that would have been like the day after we recorded that episode. Right. So, <laughs> right, right, so right. like, and yeah. I was still, and I was still like freaking out because I was looking at, um, I was reading talk about the Johnson administration doing the, uh, uh, doing the herd immunity model, which would, which could have up to a five to 10%. Oh my God. That, that was a moment there where, where Johnson looked like a maniac. Um, but okay, look, here's here's the thing that I, I want to say, and then we're gonna I'm gonna run off and mm-hmm. I'll come back in about 10, 15 minutes. Um but uh I, I think that in the second half of this uh in the parrot room, we should talk a little bit more about what we did at Zero Books. That that we can still talk about that. I can still say the name. Um I'm not gonna I don't think you're gonna sue me for 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 mentioning that place that we both were contractors for for (laughs) literally like seven years right right um uh but uh you know so yeah i want to talk about that and i want to talk about the path forward um and i it i i feel as though given how chaotic this transition has been and the amount of support also that i've received from people which was surprising like right away Real support, concrete support, a lot of moral support, um, people coming over to the Patreon. It's been really terrific. I think that I could easily enough get confused that that support meant I had achieved things that I hadn't quite achieved, you know, when I was at Zero Books. And, and, um, and also there, I mean, let's, let's talk about the fact in the pair room that you quit like right before this happened, was this a conspiracy? Did you set this up? Did you know this was going to happen? <laughs> we should, we should talk about that. 